Well, good morning, everybody. It's wonderful to be here with you. We're going to read some scripture together, and we're going to look this morning at this topic of being naturally supernatural. I didn't come up with that. I stole that from Soul Survivor, from Mike Pilavachi, for those of you who know him. I just want to give credit where credit is due. I want to explore over the next three weeks what it means for us to be people who live in the overflow of the Holy Spirit, who are naturally supernatural, who are able to live in this and abide in this and walk in this in the midst of our ordinary, normal, daily lives. So let's pray, and then we are going to jump in together. Uh, We're going to read Galatians 5 in just a moment. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for this moment. I thank you that we can be together to look at these things to explore these things, I ask the spirit of truth may fill this place and lead us into all that Jesus has for us individually and for us as a community. Come Holy Spirit, reveal Jesus to us this morning. Lead us into all truth. Come Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Now, What I want to do this morning is look at this question of what does it mean to walk in the Spirit? How can we in our ordinary, normal, daily lives walk in the Spirit? And I said a couple of Sundays ago when I was speaking about this that this is one of the most important things for us to learn as followers of Jesus, and yet tragically it's one of the things that is spoken about the least in the life of the church. So we're going to explore this the next three weeks, and just so that you know that these are not just my ideas, not just Tim's great ideas, this morning I really want to focus on laying some biblical foundations so that we can have confidence together, we can trust together that this is what the Word of God teaches, that uh, this is not just coming from me, this comes from Jesus, this comes from Paul, this comes from Peter, this comes from the first apostles, and this is something that you're invited into. Let's read Galatians chapter 5, starting at verse 16. So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. Now, he's not talking here about our bodies, necessarily. He's talking about the flesh as the the, the ungodly, the, the, the sinful desires of the heart. They're in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now, the acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. That is, if you just give in to the desires of the flesh. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh 
with its passions and desires. That is, we've chosen to follow Jesus. We've chosen to give Jesus our lives. And then since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let me say that again. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let's not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. Father, add your wisdom and understanding to this word in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, a man was traveling in the Holy Land in Israel with his wife and his mother-in-law, and unexpectedly, his mother-in-law passed away. Now, when he spoke to the funeral director, uh, the director said, now, you have two options. You can either transport uh, the body back to your home, which will cost you about $5,000, or we can arrange to have her buried here for about $150. The man thought about this for a while and eventually said, I would like to transport the body back home, please. The funeral director responded saying, why? Why spend $5,000 when you can have your mother-in-law buried here in the beautiful Holy Land for just $150? The man responded, well, 2,000 years ago, a man died and was buried here and rose again from the dead three days later. With all due respect, that's not a chance I'm willing to take. Now, I just want to say for the record, I have a wonderful (laughs) mother-in-law. This is not a reference to her in any way, but I tell that joke because the reality is, and I want to begin here, that we really do worship a living God. We really do worship a living God. He's not the God who existed 2,000 years ago. He's the God who lives and reigns now, today, right at this very moment. That's the place to begin. Jesus is alive, friends. Jesus died on the cross for the sins of all humanity, was buried, rose again, has ascended to the highest place at the right hand of the Father, and he now rules in victory. And our hope, our great hope, the hope of our salvation is that one day he will come again to renew and restore all things. Amen? That is the hope of our salvation. That's the promise that we live in as God's children. But in the meantime, in the meantime, while we wait for Jesus to return, how are we called to live this Christian life? How are we called to live as disciples? Jesus said in Matthew 28 that he will never leave us nor forsake us. But if he's ascended to the highest place, seated at the right hand of the Father, then in what way is he with us? How can he be with us to the very end if he's not physically present? Well, you know the answer to this, I'm sure. The promise for all believers is that he really is here among us, and not just external to us, but indwelling in each one of us by the presence of the Holy Spirit. And if you belong to Christ, you are filled with the Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit. No one can be a Christian unless they've been born again by the Holy Spirit. Now let's read John 14. I don't have this one on the screen, but if you have your Bibles, uh, turn with me there. I just want to look at John 14. We're going to come to Galatians 5 in just a moment. I want to look at what Jesus says about this. John 14, verse 16, he says, I will ask the Father, he's talking about our ongoing discipleship. If you love me, Jesus says, you'll keep my commandments. You'll actually follow me, like you'll take this seriously. You'll do what I tell you to do, right? If we're following Jesus, we'll long to, want to, desire to do what he says. That's what a Christian is, someone who attempts to live the way of Jesus. So if you love Jesus, 
you'll want to keep his commandments. It's not an obligation, it's not a burden, it's a desire of your heart. And I will ask the Father, Jesus says, and he will give you another advocate, another helper, who will help you and be with you forever. The spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, friends, you know him, you know the spirit of God. Why? How do we know him? What does Jesus say? Because he lives within you and will be with you. He lives within you and will be with you. I will not, I love this promise, it's one of my favorite words, this is one of my favorite sentences that Jesus ever spoke. I will not leave you as orphans. I'm going away, but I'm not going to leave you to fend for yourself. I will come to you. I will come to you. I myself will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. But we don't see Jesus physically, so how will we see him? You will see me because I live, you will also live. On that day you'll realize that I am in the Father and you are in me and I am in you. Let me say that again. On that day you'll realize that I am in my Father and you are in me and I am in you. The Spirit of God has been given to us friends, in order that we might know and experience something that those living in the old covenant prior to the coming of Jesus could have only dreamed about. I mean, we read about Moses, for example, in the Exodus. He would go into the tent of meeting. He would meet face to face with God. And his, he would come out of the tent, he would, having been in the presence of God, been in the glory of God, and his face would shine with the residual glory of that moment, so much so that it would frighten the Israelites. He'd have to put a, 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 you know, a hanky or a something over his face, a veil over his face. They have hankies in the Exodus, Bob? You would probably know that. Um, a veil over his face to keep the people from being frightened of the glory that was just shining off of Moses from him having been in God's presence. But the thing is, that was just for Moses. No, no, no one else got to experience that. None of the other Israelites were allowed into the tent of meeting. It was just for Moses. And that's what we see all the way through the, the Old Testament is that only a few special ones, a few chosen ones, got to experience the presence of God. Like Ezekiel, and like Isaiah, like David, uh, like Daniel. Not everyone, only a few chosen select people and only for a particular purpose. It wasn't an indwelling experience of the Spirit of God. It was an external experience of the Spirit of God. And again, it wasn't available to everyone. No one else could just walk into the Holy of Holies and be in the, in the, in the presence of the glory of God. If they did that, they would die. But in the promise we've received in the new covenant is that not only we, do we, not, we, we don't have to go into the Holy of Holies in order to experience the glory of God, what the, pr the promise of the new covenant is that you, your very body has become the Holy of Holies. Your body, your, your physical existence has become the temple in which God now dwells by his spirit. Are you with me? You are... If you belong to Christ, you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. And that means wherever you go, the glory of God is with you. You know, in the Old Covenant, as, a, as Israel was following the Lord in the, in the Exodus, they would have to follow the cloud of glory. When the cloud moved, they moved. When the fire moved at night, they would move. They didn't move unless the cloud moved. They didn't move unless the fire moved. 
But the promise we have is that wherever we go, wherever we find ourselves, whatever situation we're in, whatever circumstances we're dealing with, we have the glory and the presence and the power of God available to us in all of those moments. That's what it means to be someone filled with the Holy Spirit. God is with you always. Jesus is with you. And this is a promise for all of us. Joel 2, uh, which Peter refers to on the day of Pentecost, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh from the least to the greatest. Who's the least here this morning? Who's the greatest? You got to admit to that? Who's the greatest? Who's the least? It's available to all of us. It doesn't matter what is going on in your life, where you've come from, what you've experienced, whether you, how you feel about yourself, whether you feel like you're a constant failure or whether you feel like you're walking in victory. The promise is that God is with you. He's available to you. You don't have to go to the temple. Your body has become a temple of the Holy Spirit. That is, isn't that good news? Is that good news this morning? We've all been invited to enter into and enjoy, and this is what Jesus says in John 14 here. On that day, I am, with the, I am in the Father. You'll realize I'm in the Father, you're in me, and I'm in you. It's an interesting formulation. I'm in the Father, you're in me, and I'm in you. I think what Jesus is trying to describe to us here it's something that really cannot be put into words, is that through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we're drawn in by the work of the Spirit into that dynamic relationship of love that has existed between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit from everlasting to everlasting, this eternal dynamic of relationship of self-giving love, of self-emptying love that has, that has pre-existed creation is the very essence of the Godhead by the Spirit, we've been drawn into that experience. We've been drawn into that fellowship of love and uh, service. And this is what Jesus is telling, and the, telling us. The mechanics of this are really impossible to describe, yet the language here suggests incredible intimacy, a closeness that goes beyond anything that's humanly possible, beyond any human relationship that we could ever experience. Much, much deeper than that. Much, much more profound than that. Much, much more faithful than that. Much, much more transforming than any human relationship. Well, we've been drawn into something that will heal and restore and renew the very deepest parts of our being, of our humanity, um, of our existence. This is what Jesus is inviting us into by the Holy Spirit. Now, sometimes the New Testament writers speak of Christ living in us, and sometimes it's of the Spirit living in us. Sometimes they speak of Christians being in Christ or, or, or of us being in the Holy Spirit. I think it doesn't really matter where you place the emphasis. The reality is the same. If you intertwine your fingers together, it's equally true to say that your right hand is in your left hand, that your left hand is in your right hand. It doesn't matter where you place the emphasis. The reality is, same, is the same either way. The point is that it's firmly interconnected, and that's what the Holy Spirit wants you to understand about your relationship with Christ through the Holy Spirit. I think the most frequent emphasis we see is that we're in Christ, and the Spirit is in us. That image of Christ is the new human, the second Adam, and we're members of his body, yeah? 
And so therefore his blood, his presence, his person uh, flows into our bodies by the Holy Spirit who fills us and enables us to know Jesus fully. So with that in mind, friends, we can relax in terms of, of how to pray. I mean, I was taught when I was young that I pray to the Father uh, through Jesus, the Son, by the Holy Spirit. Did anyone get taught that formula? I pray to the Father through Jesus by the Holy Spirit. Now, that might be true as far as it goes, but in some senses it's unnecessary. I can pray to the Father by the Holy Spirit, yes and amen. I can pray to the Holy Spirit. I can pray to Jesus by the Holy Spirit. Doesn't matter how I do it. It's not meant to be complicated. The reality is that when I turn my face to God, when I want to commune with God and talk to Him and have relationship with Him, the operator, I guess the, the operating system, if I can put it that way, this almost sounds sacrilegious, but the, the way in which the mechanics of how that works is that it's only possible by the Spirit of God working in me and praying through me. It's what Paul says in Romans 8. We don't know how to pray. None of us know how to pray, not properly. And yet when we, when we pray, when we pause to pray, We're engaging in something that is going on within us by the Holy Spirit, these wordless groans. The Spirit of God is already interceding for us according to the will of God. So I can rest, I can relax, I don't need to stress out about whether my prayers are good enough. I can just trust that if if I'm engaging with God, if I have faith in Jesus, then the Spirit of God will be doing something in me that's transformative and powerful, even if I don't feel anything uh, happening in the moment. How are we going here? Everyone okay? Turn to the person next to you and say, you can pray whatever way you want. Just pray to, just, actually that's not quite true. Anyway, <laughs> don't stress. Don't stress about how you pray. Let's say it like that. Don't stress about how you pray. Now, coming to look at Galatians 5. What I want to say here, friends, is I think Paul is very clear about something in Galatians 5 that I really want to narrow in on. That this incredible dynamic life in the kingdom of God that we've been invited into as God's adopted children, as heirs of the promise, which comes to us by the Spirit, is that we can know in our own souls, in our own bodies, in our minds and our wills and in our emotions, Uh, the very love and eternal life of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That is something that all of us are meant to live in on a day-to-day basis. It's not just for the special ones, for the especially saintly, holy, righteous people. It's a promise to every believer. It's a promise to you. It's your gift in Christ Jesus that you might know the Father, that you might walk in the love of the Father, and that this is the natural overflow of your your discipleship as someone filled with the Holy Spirit. It's not meant to be weird. It's not meant to be just for the special people. It's meant to be for all of us. And the challenge, I guess, is, I think Paul says this, in fact, in 2 Corinthians, that we've had many teachers, we've had many teachers who talk about these things, and here I am this morning talking about these things, 
but we've not had many fathers, many mentors, many people to show us what this looks like. And this is the problem with preaching on this, and I've been acutely aware as I've been trying to prepare this week, really wrestling with this material, because I actually know in my heart of hearts that this is not something that you can teach another person. Um, I can lay out the framework, I can explain the biblical theology that underpins it all, but it's actually up to you. Um, you have to catch this for yourself. I've read lots and lots of books over the years on the life of the Spirit of God, how to walk in the Spirit, um, how to understand the theology of the Holy Spirit. But it's not until I actually took steps for myself to desire this, to long for this, to be obedient to this, that things began to change. And I think this is what Paul is opening up for us in Galatians 5. Everything we're called to do and be as followers of Jesus, especially in terms of our ongoing growth in Christ, has to flow from this reality of learning how to walk in the Holy Spirit. Learning how to walk in the Holy Spirit. Galatians 5, verse 16 to 18, Paul says, So I say, walk by the Spirit and you'll not gratify the desires of the flesh. The flesh desires what's contrary to the Spirit, the Spirit what's contrary to the flesh. They're in conflict with each other. Does anyone know what Paul is talking about there? Right? You experience that conflict on a day-to-day basis. We all do. The point is not to give in, but to press into the Holy Spirit. Don't give in to the flesh, press in to the Holy Spirit. Don't let the flesh rule over your life, but let the Spirit rule over your life. Come under the governance of the Holy Spirit. Submit yourself to the leading, teaching, speaking ministry of the Holy Spirit. That's the secret to growth in Christ Jesus. Not something that we stir up within ourselves. We don't dial it up. In fact, we're called to dial it down to not try to strive our way into uh, growth in Christ, but to rest in the power and the presence and the ministry and the leading of the Holy Spirit. Because if you submit yourself to the Spirit, if you rest in the Spirit, He will lead you. He will speak to you. He will teach you. The temptation for us is to keep on taking control of this for ourselves. So Paul says... Walk by the Spirit and you'll not gratify the desires of the flesh. It doesn't say try really hard to be the right person, to do everything uh, that you think you're called to, you have to do. He says walk by the Spirit. Because if you're led by the Spirit, verse 18, you are not under the law. This is not an obligation, this is not about rules. This is not about placing heavy burdens on you. It's not a matter of the law. That's the religion of the Pharisees we were talking about a couple of weeks ago. But if you're led by the Spirit, uh, you're not under the law. And Paul goes on to talk about what the works of the flesh look like. Won't read that again. But then he says, verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit. Now, the fruit of what? Your best efforts? The fruit of your hard work? The fruit of your incredible obedience? No, it's the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit. Which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, 
self-control. Against those things, there is no law. I've never fully understood what Paul means there, other than to say, I think God has thrown open the doors to you. There's no barrier to you entering into these things. The, the, the way we enter in is by learning to walk in the Spirit. Okay. Since we live, and this I think is the key verse, since we live by the Spirit, you can't be a follower of Jesus unless you're born again by the Spirit, let us keep therefore in step or walk in the Spirit. We see Jesus modeling this in his own life, don't we? Following the leading of the Holy Spirit, listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit, trusting in the power of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus said, the Son of Man can do nothing by himself. So Jesus showed us what this looks like. Uh, and I was so convicted by this this week because who do I think I am? Who on earth do I think I am? That I could follow Jesus in a way that not even Jesus himself could do his ministry. That I could try and do something in a way that was not even possible for the Son of God. That I could do what I'm called to do without learning to rely on and trust and walk in the Holy Spirit. Who do I think I am that I have some kind of power available to me that not even Jesus had available to him, that I could do this apart from the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit? What Jesus invites us into what walking in the Spirit is definitely not, is not a matter of having perfect doctrine. Theology is important, but theology on its own will not teach you how to walk in the Holy Spirit. It's not a matter of perfect behaviour. Paul's clear here, you can't work your way into this by just keeping the rules. That's the religion of the Pharisees. Our growth in Jesus is dependent on us not learning to uh, have perfect behaviour, but learning how to walk in the Holy Spirit. It's not a matter of finding the right formula. If we can just get our church services right, if we can learn how to pray correctly, if we can figure out the right liturgy, um, as helpful as those things might be at different points in our lives, they cannot take the place of us each individually actually learning how to walk in the Holy Spirit. And I'll tell you what, it el what else it isn't. It's not great power to use spiritual gifts. Because I've been around the charismatic world for many, many years now, and I can tell you from first-hand experience that just being able to pray in tongues, discern all mysteries, prophesy, heal the sick, work miracles, doesn't guarantee that your life is actually formed in Christ-likeness. In some ways, that power that's available to us, if it's not matched with learning how to walk in the Spirit, ends up being incredibly destructive. And that's something I'm still trying to understand but what I can tell you is just seeking after power from the Holy Spirit without learning to walk in the Holy Spirit will destroy you and destroy many people around you. We've got to learn how to walk in the Spirit. And I think the power stuff, the gifts, the ministries, a lot of that ends up just taking care of itself. If we're walking in the Spirit, then we'll be available to the Spirit to do whatever He needs us to do and His gifts will be uh, available to us in those moments. The other thing that it's not is that it's not to be measured by how we feel, by our emotions. 
Daniel Steele, a British Christian minister in the 18th century, wrote a letter to a friend about his prayer life, and he says this, almost every week, and sometimes every day, I feel a pressure of his great love that comes down on my heart in such a measure as to make me groan under an almost unsupportable plethora of joy. At such times, he has unlocked every apartment of my being and flooded them all with light in his presence. The inner soul has been touched and its stoniness has been melted away in the presence of Jesus, the one altogether lovely. Now, that's a man talking about his prayer life. Is that how you talk about your prayer life? Probably not. Um, the reality is, friends, I've had moments, yes, when I've experienced things like that. I've also had long seasons, long stretches, when I've not experienced anything particularly emotional at all. And here's what I want to tell you, because if I don't say this, I'm going to set you up for incredible failure. This is not to be measured by how you feel, by your emotions. That's not the point. The Christian life, Jesus never promised that the Christian life would be one long emotional high. He did promise that we would have joy, but joy is something quite different to happiness. You can have joy in the midst of grief. You can have joy in the midst of tragedy. You can have joy when everything else is falling apart. Joy is that sense of a firm foundation that holds you fast no matter what may be going on, on the, around you or on the surface, or even in terms of your own turbulent emotions. We can't trust our emotions. God loves our emotions. He created them, but they're not the way we measure whether the Holy Spirit is at work in our lives. Now, I think over time, yes, uh, as we read, the fruit of the Spirit will shape the way that we feel, will shape our emotions, won't it? I mean, if we're learning to be patient, if we're learning to have self-control, if we're growing in these things as the Spirit leads us, then of course um, we won't be given, as Paul says, to fits of rage, to selfish ambitions, to uh, envy. You know, where those kinds of ungodly emotions take hold of us and destroy us, but there are godly emotions that grow in the work as the, the Spirit is at work in our lives. And uh, the point, I guess, is that we're to measure how we're going in terms of walking and, and listening and learning to be obedient to the Holy Spirit by whether we're growing in love, by whether we're ultimately growing in love. Now, not feeling love, not just feeling more loving, but growing in actual love, which is that you learn to serve and to obey and to give and to... Um, uh, offer your life to Christ and to others in the same free way in which he has offered himself to you. What I think, where I think we need to begin with this, and I'm going to draw this to a close. I'm going to touch, since Bob told the story last week, I'm going to do the same thing. Uh, just in a moment. What I, want, what I want to do, and the reason I'm telling you this story, which is a, um, a little parable written by Leo Tolstoy of War and Peace fame, um, where I think we need to begin with this is recovering again this incredibly beautiful promise that it starts with childlike faith. Right? Our, our learning to walk in the Spirit begins with childlike faith. We can so easily overcomplicate it, um, over-theologize it, make it something that looks like, well, unless I've got a theology degree or unless I've had years and years and years of experience and this is not going to work for me, 
I'm, I'm too young, I'm too inexperienced, I don't know enough about the Bible, I don't know about theology. The reality is, friends, this is for, what does Joel 2 tell us? It's for all of us from the least to the greatest. In the kingdom of God, there are no favorites. So we begin with childlike faith, just as Jesus said, unless you enter the kingdom of God like a little child, you can have no part in me. And one of the things that Leo Tolstoy really struggled with throughout his life, and he was a believer, but he really struggled to accept the love of God. He really struggled to accept the grace of God. Uh, And he was deeply challenged by the simple way that Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, to trust the Father. Um, not with many words, but constant repetition and getting all your theology right, uh, elaborate prayers that impress other people, but just simple, childlike, faith-filled prayers of, of simple trust. This is what he writes. This is the story that he tells. A Russian Orthodox bishop and several pilgrims are traveling on a fishing boat to a particular monastery. During the voyage, the bishop overhears a discussion about a remote island nearby their course where three old hermits live a Spartan existence focused on seeking salvation for their souls. Inquiring about these hermits, the bishop finds that several of the fishermen claim to have seen the hermits once or twice. The bishop informs the captain he wants to visit the island. The captain seeks to dissuade him by saying, oh, these old men are not worth your pains. I've heard people say that they're foolish old fellows who understand nothing and they never speak a word. The bishop insists and the captain steers the ship toward the island. The bishop gets off the, the, on a rowboat to go visit. He's ashore. When he's ashore, he meets the three hermits. He's met by the three hermits. The bishop informs the hermits that he's heard of them and their search for salvation. He inquires how they're seeking salvation and serving God. And the hermits say, well, we don't really know how, only we pray very simply, three are you, three are we, have mercy on us. Three are you, three are we, have mercy on us. The bishop acknowledges that they have a little knowledge but are generally ignorant of the true meaning of doctrine and how to pray properly. He tells them that he'll teach them and proceeds to explain the various doctrines of the Incarnation and the Trinity. He attempts to teach them the Lord's Prayer, the Our Father, but the simple hermits blunder and can't remember the words. This compels the bishop to repeat the lesson over and over again late into the night. After he's finally satisfied that the hermits have memorized the prayer, he departs from the island, leaving them with a firm instruction to pray just as he has taught them. The bishop returns to the fishing vessel, anchored offshore in the rowboat, and continues on his voyage. Now, while he's on board, the bishop notices that their vessel is being followed. At first, he thinks a boat is behind them, but soon realizes that the three hermits are running across the surface of the water as as though it were dry land. The hermits catch up to the vessel as the captain stops the boat and they inform the bishop, Bishop, we've forgotten your teaching. Servant of God, as long as we kept repeating it, we remembered it, but when we stopped saying it for a time, oh, the words dropped out and now it's all gone to pieces. We can remember nothing of it. Can you please teach us again? The bishop is greatly humbled and replies to the hermits, Your own prayer will reach the Lord, men of God. It's not for me to teach you. Pray for us sinners. After this, the hermits turn around and they walk back to their island. Now, I love that little story 
And remember, it's a parable. I don't think Tolstoy is saying, and neither am I here, that theology is not important. What I think he's saying is that our faith should be simple, childlike. We should approach God with that sense of earnest trust that when we speak, he hears us, that when we ask, he answers us, that when we long for him, he meets us. Um, I think when we're learning to walk in the Spirit, it becomes joyful obedience, even when there's so much that we don't understand. Friends, I have devoted my life to trying to understand these things, to follow Jesus, and so often my theologizing has taken me away from that, has complicated that, and I've I have a tendency to make my Christian life almost impossibly difficult. But thank God that the endowment of the Holy Spirit is such that he's given to be our what? What does Jesus call him? Our helper. Our helper. And I think if you will ask him, if you will long for him, if you will cry out to him, if you'll kind of dial down the stress and anxiety around this and rest in this promise. He will meet you, he will fill you, he will help you, he will empower you, and he'll lead you to uh, new places of growth and freedom and life in Christ. Uh, I think it be, Psalm, Psalm 63, one is a really great place to begin. You are my God, eagerly I seek you, my, my soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you, as in a barren and dry land where there is no water. I'm going to invite you to stand with me for a moment. And we're going to just take, take a moment to, to do this together. So let's stand. Let's stand and let's just wait on the Holy Spirit. We are going to break bread together in just a moment. We're going to take communion. But let's close our eyes. Let's open our hands. And let's pray this simple prayer, Psalm 63.1. Just pray this in your heart. Lord, you are my God. Eagerly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a barren and dry land where there is no water. Lord, we thirst for you. We long for you. Holy Spirit, come and fill us afresh. Come and help us, just as Jesus promised you would. Lord, I'm sorry that I have a tendency to make this so complicated. Come, Holy Spirit, fill each person here, from the least of us to the greatest. I thank you that it begins with just this simple prayer, that we can speak like a child. Help me, help me, Lord, help me, Lord Jesus. Come, Holy Spirit. Draw me up into the love of the Father and the Son. Take me deeper into the life of Christ. Help me to keep in step with you that I might produce your fruit.
We know this world is longing to see a church that is real, that is walking in the Spirit, that knows how to keep in step with the Spirit, that's not just after power or influence or to control the culture, but that we're walking in the life of the Spirit, growing the fruit of the Spirit, demonstrating the gifts of the Spirit, inviting others to join us on this incredible journey. Come Holy Spirit.